You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that knows it was Jane Austen who once said that it is a truth universally acknowledged that show in possession of good downloads must be in want of a sponsorship. Or something like that. I'm Megan. She's Pride and Prejudice. We literally did an episode on her. And Pride and Prejudice. Alright, I'm RJ. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Oh, it was either that one or... And the light has left his <laughs> eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, the others. The others. Yes, of course. The others. Uh, 10,000 Weeks Under the Sea, Jane Austen, maybe. I don't know. Who do you think did... 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Yeah. You know, we did an episode on 20,000 Leagues <laughs> Under the Sea. Oh, this one's a little shallower. We did an episode on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, you remember who wrote that one? H.G. Wells. Nope. Mm. Orson Wells. And so we continue on. It may not have felt much like summer because, you know, we're uh, currently living in the hell times, but it, it was, slash still kind of is, I guess, but soon it will be back to school and wow, yeah, that's a whole other can of nightmare worms, isn't it? Neither RJ or I are teachers anymore, but still thinking about the current situation that teachers and students are having to face and being asked to deal with uh, re the coming school year makes me want to drive a Zamboni through various offices of higher government, but since we're not yet at the Mad Max Fury Road stage of the apocalypse, we're just going to retreat to my happy place instead and talk about your favorite bard and mine, our boy, Big Willie Shakespeare. Is there something wrong with school? Is there something going on? <laughs> I'm concerned about what you're saying. It's it's, it's fine. It's, okay. it's, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But seriously, the second this shit hits Mad Max Fury Road status, I'm getting a fucking Zamboni. I'm tricking that bitch out with spikes and exhaust pipes that shoot flames out of it. And it has a dedicated zombified man to hang off the side and play the electric guitar while I smush motherfuckers under the unyielding ice resurfacer of my death Zamboni. So not a Make-A-Wish kid uh, riding along with you? Nah, they can hop on if they want. Anyway, we're doing Romeo and Juliet. What's your Mad Max Fury Road vehicle of choice? Trike. <laughs> Anything special on it? Does it have like a skull on it? Or? No. Some rainbow tassels, unicorn horn in the front. Thinking some pink pinstripes. Ooh. Yeah. It's very nice. And then the license plate would be like Trike Power. <laughs> I support you. Thank you. You can ride alongside my death Zamboni. I'll be with the other Trike daddies. So, I don't know if it's fair to call Romeo and Juliet Shakespeare's most well-known play. I feel like that title probably goes to Hamlet, but it's definitely up there. Much critical blood has been spilled over Romeo and Juliet. Far from just being a romantic tragedy, scholars have apparently struggled with assigning a clear, simple theme to the play. Proposals for a main theme include, quote, "...discovery by the characters that human beings are neither wholly good nor wholly evil." 
awakening out of a dream and into reality, the danger of hasty action, or the power of tragic fate. None of these have uh, gained widespread support, end quote. For now, suffice to say that few and far between, I am assuming based completely on my own experiences and also popular media, is the classroom that has not been subjected to the tragic tale of woe that is a girl getting her very first crush on a boy who literally could have and should have picked any other girl in the world as a rebound, and, and then they get so horny they die. Like this if you cry every time. Spoilers. Well, that, that's my whole point. It's not really spoilers because everybody knows this story. <laughs> everybody? Speaking generally. Do you think the president knows the end of this story? <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of not the president, but RJ, did you have to read Romeo and Juliet in school? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, everyone got to read it in school. So, so I, that, that thing I just said that you were just trying to contradict. Well, nowadays. <laughs> so you read it. Do you remember anything about having to read it? I remember more that we watched Romeo plus Juliet afterwards. <laughs> so that's the one you watched in school. Oh, yeah. In high school? Pretty sure. Huh. And um, Memento. You watched Memento in high school. Yeah. Good film. I know that every time I, I look at you and I say, what fucking high school did you go to? And then you just go, IB program, IB program. So they just let you watch what the fuck ever. We were advanced. See, my experience, you were talking about movies and what they let you get away with. I read this in, in ninth grade. And I know it was specifically ninth grade because my most vivid recollection of this is not the play itself, but as you were saying, watching the movie. And we watched the 1968 movie. There's a scene where Juliet is just full-on topless, and apparently my teacher, who, who who must have shown this movie before, like, she must have known, like, because it, it's Romeo and Juliet. And I don't think this was her first time showing this movie to the class. For whatever reason, Juliet's illicit titties had slipped her mind, and so I have this very visceral memory of her seeing them on the TV and being like, no, and leaping to block the screen like she was taking a fucking bullet for the president. Not this one. A better hypothetical president. A president made of teenage actress boobs. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan made entirely of tits. <laughs> but uh, really, honestly, who doesn't know the plot of Romeo and Juliet? Even if you hadn't had to read it in school, it's been remixed and repackaged in one form or another across pop culture for, I don't know, I'm just guesstimating here, roughly a bazillion years. I mean, we, we literally have a movie where they're fucking garden gnomes. And that's probably not even the weirdest one. That's my favorite one. You haven't seen it. Yeah, on Romeo and Juliet. You haven't seen it. Yeah, they're gnomes. Yeah, but you haven't seen it. In the it. garden. I know you haven't seen it. Maybe. So what am I supposed to tell you guys about Romeo and Juliet? Like Titus Andronicus, that's easy. Way fewer people have heard of it. The jokes basically write themselves because that play is fucking bonkers. What can we say about Romeo and Juliet that isn't already well-trodden ground? Well, her pussy wasn't well-trodden ground. No, it wasn't, but we'll get there. <laughs> For now, I'll turn things over to the only Nomeo that I know, RJ. Oh, that on me. Uh-oh. Dog me out. Oh, shit. <laughs> It does not want you to do it. It heard your fucking underage pussy joke, and it said, no, you don't get to read anymore. Ah, yes, the Shake Master. The biggest willy in all the landscape that is literature. If you want to know more about B-dubs, check out many of our prior episodes on the man. Because instead of focusing on the man who may or may not have existed, and really, what does it even mean to exist? I shall focus on the play at the heart of this episode, 
Romeo and Juliet. What does it mean to exist? What does it mean to exist? You're just going to let that sit there? Oh, you don't want to do philosophers, so, you know. Well, because this is an oh-no philosophy class. Philosophers fall under literature. If we were, oh, that would be more just like, oh my fucking god, philosophy class. <laughs> Why don't we do an allegory of the cave, Meg? Um, when I decide how many more jokes I can make about the fact that Plato's name apparently meant, like, what that butt do. The play is thought to have been penned by Big Will in between 1591 and 1595. This would put Willie in his early 30s, or in the context of his career, right around the same time as The Taming of the Shrew, The Merchant of Venice, part of his career. Much like many of Shakespeare's works, this play was highly inspired by earlier works. What makes Romeo and Juliet a bit different from earlier, ahem, adaptations that he did. That's being generous. <laughs> this one in particular was done fairly quickly. Instead of looking for inspiration from works long, long ago, the works that inspired Romeo and Juliet were written just a year or two before Big Willie was born. I'm not sure the ink was even dry on these things yet. So maybe Big Willie should be credited with another artistic phenomenon, the 20-year nostalgia cycle, which should maybe be the focus of another discussion. To be clear, all of these works are actually based on real-life events. Little old Romeo and Juliet lived in Verona way back in the 1200s up until 1303. In 1303, when they were 12 and 14, something happened. Something bad. Wait, they were they were real people? Yes. They, they, were, they were real flesh and or blood children. In Verona. No shit. This is a love story that has lived on for almost a thousand years. In fact, the first evidence of the Montagues and Capulets exists in the writing of Dante, who wrote about the families back in the 1300s. Dante, like, uh, Inferno Dante. Dante. Dante, uh, first, world's first fan fiction Dante. Dante. You're blowing my mind right now. It's been around for a while. We've talked about the Montagues and Capulets. Montague? Were they Montagues? Montagues and Capulets. That was their name. Yeah, the real ones then. Yeah. Okay. Because by the time Shakespeare got to them, they were Montagues. The G, soft. Talk about Italy here. I know we talked about being 10-year war hot. Maybe we need to start thinking about who is worth shipping for an entire millennium. Children, apparently. As for the specific works that inspired Big Willie, they were, first, The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet by Arthur Brooke in 1562. Brooke took what was basically a classic, tragic Italian love story going all the way back to antiquity and turned it into pretty verse. Brooke's work was then adapted and retold in prose by William Painter just five years later in Palace of Pleasure. So, as we've discussed before, Willie adapted an adaptation and released it on his own. I'm seriously beginning to think of a music career in which I rework some of Weird Al songs and release them. A cover of a cover. Like a virgin, Mary. Giving birth for the very first time. Uh, uh. Uh-huh. How about White and Beardy, an anthem for the hipster generation? How long did you spend on this? I think there's real opportunity here. <laughs> I could be the modern day Shakespeare. And so modest. So, as for Brooks's The Tragical History of Romeos and Juliet, it focuses on Romeo Titensis. T- what? Titensis. And one Juliet. Bibliotet. Bibliotet? Yeah. Bibliotet. Bibliotet and titensis. Actually, going many levels deep here, Brooks's verse is actually based on a novella from Matteo Bendello. 
If you remember Matteo Bandello's name, it's because Big Willie borrowed from him previously to come up with Much Ado About Nothing. I was going to say that sounded familiar. I'll be honest. I forgot the man's name, but I remembered that I researched him before because he has a striking <laughs> resemblance to Donald Duck. <laughs> which is unfortunate because he's a man. So wait, so wait, Matteo, Matteo, what's his face, also did the original Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. And he wrote about Romeo and Juliet in Italian, but Brooks is the one who brought it over to English, which is really what Shakespeare took from. So Matteo is the one we have to blame for this weird thing of friars popping out of the woodwork being like, hey, I've got a great plan. Fake your own death. Yeah. I think he was a friar. (laughs) So maybe we should look into this duck friar man. Because maybe he was actually going around and being like, you got a problem? You don't know what to do? Got a solution. Got a great plan for you. Fake your own death. Yeah, he was a monk and a bishop. I wonder if this was a a practice that he was like actually committing to in the real life. I wonder if this was... (laughs) Fake your own death. I can't can't do Can you imagine this man walking around coming up to you? (laughs) I I can't do a Donald Duck. Can you do it in Italian though? No. (laughs) So Brooks's slash Bandello's tale has all the familiar twists and turns. One of the biggest differences is that old Romeo Titensis and Juliet Bibliotet's tale of woe takes place over months, unlike Shakespeare's, which takes place over four days. Now, some critics say this makes Shakespeare's version more, quote unquote, intense. (laughs) I disagree. (laughs) I think the car crash that plays out over months and has a much longer time to be righted is much more intense. Shakespeare's all like, wham, bam, take some dead tweens and enjoy it. And well, why did it have to be over so quickly? (laughs) Brooks' version did have it all, though. The meeting at the ball, the secret marriage, Romeo's fight with Tybalt, the sleeping potion, and the ending, which I shan't ruin for those of you who don't know it yet. Megan already ruined it. It's it's in the very (laughs) beginning. Not much is known about Brooke, other than he drowned trying to fight on the behalf of Protestants during the French Wars of Religion, which pitted French Catholics against French Protestants, specifically Huguenots. There's a fact for it. The other big adaptation that William borrowed from was William Painter's The Palace of Pleasure, which is not the title I would choose for a collection that contains a story about tweens getting hot and heavy and suicide but that's just me. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. Now, to be fair, the palace was a big one, and it contained around 60 tales in it. But still, Guy, be wise about the titles, please. What was uniquely Shakespeare's was that he created Mercutio and Count Paris, which helps round out the plot of his version. Mercutio is also easily the best character in the play, so you kind of got to give him that one. Also, if you go back and listen to our episode on Shakespeare truthers, namely that some people, Mark Rylance included, do not believe Shakespeare could have written the plays credited to him, one line of attack is that how could this Englishman, this poor Englishman at that, know so much about Italy? Well, when he adapted an adaptation from a story in Italy that is old as time, well, some stuff is kind of just baked in, you know? So point, Big Willie. Fuck you, Mark Rylance! A couple of contextual things to keep in mind about merry old England while you imagine Romeo and Juliet being acted out on the stage in the 1590s. Women were not allowed to be on stage. And so this play about a teenage boy and a teenage girl was acted out by a grown man and a teenage boy. 
Historians speculate that during the early productions of the play, Romeo was played by Richard Burbage and Juliet was portrayed by Master Robert Gow. Both these actors were part of the company of men known as Lord Chamberlain's Men, and there are references to actors in that company in later notes about the early productions of R and J. Richard Burbage is known to have played many of Shakespeare's leading men, Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, and on and on. So he was kind of a thing in those days. Speaking of those days, when Romeo and Juliet was first shown, Burbage would have been in his 30s. He was also described as being short and stout. As for... <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio, he was not. <laughs> it was not described if this was his hand or if this was his spout. <laughs> As for the other half of this love line is Master Robert Go. He played a number of female roles. Go or Gow? I don't know. You said Gow right before. G-O-U-G-H. Like, pick one and be consistent. Gow. Gow, Go, Goff? Goff? I don't know. It would have taken you two seconds to look this up. Yeah, I live in mystery. Great. And in the last episode, RJ does his homework. RJ looks things up. Master Robert G. He played a number of female roles from Shakespeare plays and would have been around 15 during the initial run of Romeo and Juliet. So there you have it. A love story between a short, stout, 30-something man and a 15-year-old boy. A tale that lives on in our memories. Oh, it's like Call Me By Your Name. One wonders if Romeo and Juliet is a favorite among the Namble crowd. Ew. Another contextual thing to keep in mind is that this play speaks to the issue of patriarchy and male-dominated rule in the 1590s, even though they were ruled by, you know, a queen. Queen Elizabeth I? QE2 isn't that old. Yet. QE1 was known for pushing a very masculine image, part of the reason she is said to never have been married. She felt the more masculine she seemed, the more legitimate her role was. This spills over in Romeo and Juliet as Lord Capulet believes he is the ruler of his roost because he has a penis and Juliet is his daughter. And damn it, what he says should go because, you know, penis. Turns out that flexing of the organ known as patriarchy maybe leads to a bad end here. Although according to some literary historians, there were probably a good number of people who saw this play and thought, those fucking ingrates got what they deserved because they didn't listen to the man. You know, because the man is always right, long live the patriarchy, and looked at anyone who thought the story was anything other than a reaffirmation of that viewpoint with googly eyes. Which is wild because... If you just look at the text, it seems pretty clear that that's not the message that Shakespeare is trying to convey. Especially if you look at the ending, like, it doesn't seem like Shakespeare is trying to tell a story that's like, Yeah, listen to your parents, or you'll die. (laughs) Now, given that some things never change, I do wonder if there are people who are exposed to Romeo and Juliet here in the 21st century who go, Yeah, you know what? Y'all should have listened to Daddy, and then you wouldn't be dead. Oh, there are totally people who would read it that way. There are absolutely text-illiterate people who would fucking read it that way. Are you kidding me? (laughs) As for the first productions of the play, we do not know exactly when they were performed, but we know it was before 1597, when the first written evidence of the play was included in the first quarto, with notes that the play hath been often and with great applause played publicly. The play was quite popular. It rivaled the popularity of Hamlet during Shakespeare's lifetime. It was also among the first Shakespeare plays to be performed outside of England. We know that a version of the play was performed in Nordlingen, Germany in 1604. Nordlingen is noteworthy for two reasons. 
One, the town exists in a 15 million year old, 15 mile wide crater created by an asteroid strike way back when. Dope. Nordlingen is also the town in which Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was filmed. So when a different older man and a younger boy make a great (laughs) escape in a glass elevator together, they were looking down on Nordlingen. The first woman did not portray Juliet until the play was brought back to the stage in 1662 after the Puritan government shut down all the theaters for about two decades. You know, because they were a fun group. (sighs) To get a little American-centric here for a minute, I know most people who grow up and went through schooling in the U.S., as we've already discussed, it would have been hard for them to miss Shakespeare, as Megan said. Oh, there he goes. Miss Shakespeare. Like, oh, oh, there he goes. Just missed him. Like, everyone was exposed to the guy at least a couple times. The thing is, this was not always the case. Shakespeare did not catch on in the U.S. and start showing up on curriculums until the second half of the 19th century. And even then, it was mostly begrudgingly. After all, when English was taught in the way we think of it today, it was to train preachers, lawyers, politicians, etc. Novels and plays were not really the things that educators felt were important at the time. Educators, of course, being old, stodgy white dudes. Novels and plays are for women and the gays. But what happened was that there were plenty of study groups that got together and they would read novels and plays and they really liked Shakespeare. They'd act out the plays, debate the meaning of the language, and thus these nerdy groups pushed their educators to start teaching Shakespeare works, really under the guise of learning new language. However, because of that, when Shakespeare texts were first taught, important passages were taught without context and apart from the plays they came from. Basically, imagine a reader of essays, and one of the essays being a soliloquy written by Shakespeare. Shakespeare's works were considered to be popular and commercial, and thus not of the highest academic standards. So some of the earliest learners of Shakespeare in the U.S. did so without ever really learning about him or his oeuvre. Instead, they learned of his works in bite-sized bits in isolation. Basically, it was used to teach rhetoric. The other big bugaboo was that the theater scene in the early 19th century in the U.S. was sketchy at best. A lot of the big actors and actresses in the scene had pretty questionable side gigs, like prostitution. So the theater was lowbrow. That's so weird. Why? Well, just to think about, like, in comparison to, like, now. (laughs) Yeah, but as American theater came into its own towards the 20th century, the way people regarded Shakespeare and his works began to change. And so what might seem like Shakespeare is everywhere, and might be something all American kids were exposed to in their educational upbringing, that is actually only true for the last century or so, even though Big Willie wrote this stuff nearly 500 years ago. One interesting thing I do want to mention before I turn this over to Megan is that the most famous scene that I bet most of you think of in Romeo and Juliet, the balcony scene, isn't actually in the play at all. See, the balcony part of the scene is a complete invention that's been added on after the fact, Balconies did not exist in the age of Shakespeare. He would have no idea what a balcony was. All he refers to in the play is a window. But we needed to make this more dramatic. And so, now, enter balcony. Come to my window. And now, with all that out of the way, Megan, how about you educate us on these hot and horny teens? Oh, I will. Because they were both of those things. It's weird to think about Shakespeare being this just sort of like dark, weird thing in the theaters, like, that's something prostitutes do. And, like, people fighting to be like, we want to be taught Shakespeare. No, that's something prostitutes do. That's right. (laughs) Not upstanding citizens. (laughs) And now students of today are just, like, 
No, take it back. <laughs> We've changed our minds. Hey everybody, it's Megan, and I'll try to keep this section as short as possible, because as you can tell, this episode is already far too long, because quarantine has made us go absolutely off our shits on Shakespeare. Uh, as always, this episode is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, slabderific patrons. Slabderific probably isn't a word, but it is one now. I haven't slept in a while. It's it's a problem. Don't don't worry about it. It's fine. It's great. Including our newest and most slap slapperific. Yeah, that's probably the word that I just said. Ones Bridget, Heather, and Bunny Powered. That's their name, and perhaps even how they achieve motion and energy. And they're Bunny Powered. And they're Heather and Bridget. So thank you very much, guys. We super appreciate it. And it's awesome. And it helps keep our show going. And we love you. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the big, beautiful clusterfuck that is this episode. Romeo and Juliet. As it is star-crossed. So the play opens with a prologue, where we are given what listeners who have heard our Iliad and Orpheus and Eurydice episodes will recognize as a very Grecian introduction to the play, as a chorus comes out and literally tells us the plot, like down to the actual running time, saying, Hey, welcome to Verona, Italy. Because of course it's in Italy. It's always in Italy. Shakespeare had possibly the world's biggest hard-on for Italy. Of course, now I also know, because you've told me, that it was a true story that happened in Italy. Yeah. But then I guess that might have also led to Shakespeare seeking this story out. Like, he read about it, you know, he saw this poem, and he was like, What? A thing that happened in Italy? This is mine now. Because he was horny for Italy. Where the uh, Capulet and Montague families have been feuding forever. Over the next two hours, two kids from these families are going to fall in love, kill themselves, and make everyone sad. So, brace yourselves. The uh, actual quoted lines are, From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Which I just wanted to say because from forth the fatal loins of these two foes is great alliteration. And also, I'm 11 years old and loins is a funny word. <laughs> loins. Anyway, like I said, we talked in both our Iliad and what was basically our Hades Town episode uh, about being told, like, major plot points and stuff ahead of time and sort of the weirdness of that. And also teased RJ about his habit of looking up summaries of movies before he watches them. And I brought it up again just now because it'll always be weird to me. Gotta know what I'm getting into. It's weird. Nah. But, yeah, I, I suppose it's effective here because Shakespeare's just kind of like, hey, <laughs> these two kids... They're cute, right? Well, don't get too attached, because they're defo gonna bite it. Just keep that in mind when you see them falling in love, holding hands, defying their families, hatching overly convoluted plots to be together, because, you know, they just love each other so much. Never let yourself forget, those crazy kids, they're basically already dead. What? Always a fan of dramatic irony, our boy Willie. So the play proper begins with a scene of two Capulet servants basically just chilling and talking shit about the Montagues. Because the feud between these families is so intense and so deep that even the servants, who I feel like typically probably wouldn't be bothered to give a shit because, you know, they just work here. No, they're talking about how much they'd wreck some Montagues if they had the chance. And then conveniently, some Montague servants show up and the Capulet boys are like, Ooh, we can fight them! Except... Except... Except that the current law of the land in Verona is operating based on kindergarten rules. 
AKA, yeah, but he started it. So the Capulet servants may want to fight, but they can't be the ones to initiate it. Of course. Yes. So the solution is to provoke it. How do they do this? They farted each other. No. (laughs) I mean, that would be one way, but no, that's not what they do. The first one suggests giving them a really mean look and seeing if that'll do the trick. That's a good Pokemon move. Mean look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Gengar does that, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I yeah. believe Gengar does use mean look. So, yeah, literally he's just like, let's frown at him. And the other one's like, no, that's stupid. I'm going to bite my thumb at them. Which people joke was like the Elizabethan version of flipping the bird. But I think based on the fact that Big Willie feels like he needed to have the character explain it is his quote. It is a disgrace to them if they bear it. Means that more than likely audiences at the time probably weren't familiar with it either. If one character has to explain like, this is an insult. A cursory bit of researching shows little evidence of thumb biting as an insult existing outside of Romeo and Juliet. So... It might have just been a weird thing Shakespeare invented because he couldn't show anything actually offensive on stage. But I didn't do a super deep dive into it because that's a weird rabbit hole to fall into. And this is act one, scene one. Anyway, Cappy One bites his thumb and we get the famous exchange of, do you bite your thumb at us? I don't know. I'm just biting my thumb. Yes, but is it at us? Et cetera, et cetera. And then they forget the whole like, wait, we need to not be the ones to start a fight. And anyway, they get riled up with wanting to look cool in front of Tybalt, the nephew of Lady Capulet, who just happens to be walking by. And before you know it, the servants are beating the shit out of each other. This happens. And then at the same moment, Benvolio, vague cousin of the Montagues and also Romeo's bestest friend is also walking by. I'm going to hit pause in a little bit once we get to Juliet about accurate character ages and shit, but basically all the main characters in this play are really young dipshit teenagers. Like, really young. Much younger than a lot of people might realize due to adaptational decay, which we'll get into. I mean, you briefly kind of touched upon with the accurate historical Romeo and Juliet just how fucking young they are. (laughs) But anyway, logic dictates that If Benvolio is Romeo's best friend, he's also like 16, maybe 17 at best. But unlike Romeo, Benvolio isn't a rash, horny, hot-headed dumbass. Benvolio, for the most part, is a good kid, doing his best. And in this moment, that means trying to break up this illegal four-person sword fight. Telling them all to get a fucking grip. Unfortunately, Tybalt is also there. Tybalt is often referred to as the Prince of Cats, and is well-named Because he's a catty bitch who is literally always horny for violence. He tells Benvolio that he hates the word peace, quote, as I hate hell, all Montagues, and thee, and then fights him. Tybalt is perhaps more of what one would expect from a 17-year-old boy. Give peas a chance. It's good fiber, nice and green. I hate you. I I hate hell, all Montagues, and thee. (laughs) Full of chlorophyll. Eventually... Yeah, that's the powerhouse of the cell. No. Yeah. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, you dumb fuck. Chlorophyll. (laughs) Chlorophyll's in, like, plants. Ernest Hemingway? Is the powerhouse of the cell? That and he wrote 25,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Stop. No. I'm just going to punch you. (laughs) Jonathan Swift? Ernest Hemingway is the powerhouse of the cell. (laughs) <laughs> he is. He punches the shit out of him, man. He's fucking yoked. Eventually, the street fight gets broken up by the city guard, and we cut to the lords and ladies Capulet and Montague, who end up sitting in front of the Prince of Verona, like their kids in the fucking principal's office. That's basically how he lectures them, saying that their feud is bullshit, and that everyone else in Verona has to put up with it, and that they're sick of it. Is it Benny versus the Jets? 
I mean, we're going to have to talk about West Side Story. <laughs> oh, is that Romeo and Juliet? Yes. I didn't know this. Yeah. Benny and the Jets. <laughs> Dude. Dude. That's not West Side Story. It's Benny versus the Jets. Oh my god. Because Benny's known as the shock. Can we please get past Act 1, Scene 1? The end. <laughs> I'm RJ. Everyone knows the story. <laughs> my heart will go on forever. Is that Romeo and Juliet? The, the boat's the bad No, guy? the boat is not Romeo and Juliet. You sure? Yes. I'm sure. The Prince of Verona says that he's sick of their shit. And he, he tells them if there's any more fucking brawling, he's gonna kill them. He's just gonna kill them himself. Cause so that's, he's the boat. That's how the Prince of Verona takes care of business. He says, any more fucking Montague Capulet fights, you dead. Then everyone leaves. But the Oh, Mon- it was Jules Verne. I'm going to snap. Everyone leaves with the Montagues and Benvolio, and Lord Montague is like, how did this even happen? And Lady Montague says she's just glad Romeo wasn't around to get caught up in it, because honestly, you know, he's, he's more of a lover than a fighter. And Benvolio agrees that, yeah, Romeo hasn't been around much lately, with Lord Montague chiming in that when he is around, he mostly just sighs a lot, locks himself in his room, and doesn't talk to anyone. Lord and Lady Montague just can't figure out what's going on with him. I mean, what else do they need? A journal full of love poems and some suspiciously crusty socks like they can't put two and two together? Either way, Benvolio vows to get to the bottom of things, and as the Montagues wander off stage, Romeo comes on, and Benvolio barely has to ask what's up before Romeo starts venting his problems. And boy, does he ever. He goes on about this girl, Rosalind, who he's just so deeply in love with and who absolutely does not love him back and has, in fact, taken a vow of chastity, which admittedly does sound a little like an excuse, right? Like, oh, yeah, I'd love to go out on a date, but oh, gosh, I've just remembered I've, I've taken a vow of chastity. Bummer. Okay, bye forever. Also, if you see someone doing tequila shots at the bar next week, that's definitely not me. You know, is that excuse you've ever used? Like, ah, oh, I'd love to. I've, just, I've taken a vow of chastity. I'm married to the Lord. <laughs> when I was a nun, yes. That's a nun's do. Yeah. Yeah, when I donned the habit. <laughs> Back in your habit days. Yeah, me and Whoopi. <laughs> yeah, in your sister act time. <laughs> yeah, before she became Coach Eddie. I don't know what that is. When she was coaching the Knicks. I don't know that movie. Eddie. Yeah, I don't know that movie. Oh, that's your fault. Is it good? Megan, it stars Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> coaching the Knicks. Is there a reason that she coaches the Knicks? Yeah, to make penis jokes. Just, oops, <laughs> oh, I saw a penis. <laughs> and that happens like five times. <laughs> what I want to know is what is the plot contrivance for her to coach the Knicks? Oh, well, if we're going to go off my memory, what I think it is, is that she's like a loudmouth fan. And so the team owner goes, you know what? Why don't you coach the team? <laughs> And then she does well with them, so it completely backfires. Maybe I will watch it. (laughs) Uh, So Romeo's really sad because Rosalind doesn't like him, and also she takes a vow of chastity. Romeo Montague is like the perfect storm of pubescent hormones. He does talk about how this chastity vow sucks a lot because, like, what a waste. This girl will never have any beautiful children, which is just a roundabout way of saying that he's sad he can't fuck her. But he's also deeper than that. Benvolio is already like, yeah, okay, that, that that's rough, but, you know, there's plenty of girls in the world, and Romeo's like, nope, not like her, no girl can compare, best girl ever, I'll love her until I die. So he's not just horny, he's got big feelings. Of course, as we'll see, those feelings can change on just, like, a fucking dime. But that's the problem with Romeo. 
and also pretty much anyone between the ages of like 13 and 17. Your bodies and brains are a swirling mass of confusing chemicals, making you do dumb shit. Also generally want to rub your crotch on stuff. Well, that's only today, you know, when we drink the hormone milk. They didn't have hormone <laughs> milk back then. Your body does shit in that time. It's developing. It's puberty. The human body sucks. Speaking of being 13, so we never get a specific reference to Romeo's age. And generally, wait, what's the hormone milk? They put hormones in our milk. It's why girls develop earlier. Why does drinking milk make girls develop earlier than boys? Oh, they put hormones in the milk. But why does that make girls develop earlier? Uh, yeah, you want me to Google this? A substance given to cows to increase milk production called recombinant bovine growth hormone became a prime suspect. Um, my, my quick look here is basically they're giving cows basically cow estrogen. And cow estrogen apparently isn't so much different than human estrogen. So what about people who are lactose intolerant? Cows... And women, different, but not that different. I don't know what about them. They don't drink milk. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't get that. And usually you develop lactose intolerance later in life. Anyway, speaking of being 13, so we never get a specific reference to Romeo's age, and generally, in adaptational media, our Romeos tend to be cast anywhere from 19 to 25 years old. Whereas our Juliets are typically a little younger, trending more toward 21 and under, capping at about 16 if you're feeling particularly spicy. However, as I've been previously intimating, scholars, critics, etc. tell us that the more accurate age range for Romeo is most likely 15, 16, maybe 17 at the oldest. Juliet, on the other hand, we do get an exact number on, and it's right here at the beginning of the next scene when Count Paris, wealthy bachelor about town, relative of the prince, and according to historical context, probably about 25 years old, why am I putting that out, you'll see, comes calling to the house of Capulet like, hey, what's up, how's it going, nice weather we're having today, can I marry your daughter? Now I gotta add here, apparently the hormones added to milk don't affect puberty. You know, I had a feeling. <laughs> Well, this was a big thing in the 90s. It's why when you buy the milk nowadays, it says like RBST free. Uh-huh. Because people, that was the hormone. You know, I had a feeling. But since then, it's been debunked. However. You know, I had a feeling. It might be Big Cow that's debunking this. Big Cow. Big Cow. And uh, Lord Capulet's like, my dude, she's 13. Can we maybe hold off until she's a more reasonable marrying age? Like 15. And Paris is like, <laughs> no. There's already grass on the field, baby. So he's 25. Play he's, ball. He's like, yeah, he's like, I, I want, I want that, that 13 year old girl, please, now. Lord Capulet says he would at least like for Juliet to feel like she had a say in this and be, you know, on board with the idea. We'll see how long he feels that way. So how about Paris at least put a little effort in and try to woo her at the party he's throwing tonight? Like, yeah, you're a fancy count, but you know, maybe put the fucking time in. Try. Yeah. So he agrees, and Lord Capulet gives one of his servants a list of people to invite to the party. This part... This part is fucking ridiculous. Even for Shakespeare. Even for Shakespeare. So he gives the servant the list, and it somehow doesn't occur to him that his servant is illiterate. And he can't do shit with the list. Like, what did you expect? And the servant just looks at the list like, huh... That's right. I can't read. Oopsie. <laughs> Basically. And so his solution is just to wander around until he finds someone who can. Okay. And of course, the first people he bumps into are Romeo and Benvolio. 
Look who it is! Obviously. And sure, earlier in the play, the the Capula and Montague servants are magically able to just, you know, recognize each other in the street. Like, those are Montagues, those are Capulets, let's beat the shit out of each other. But this guy doesn't recognize the son of Lord and Lady Montague when he asks him to read the guest list for him. Because reasons. Because. Like, there's Shakespeare contrivance, and then there's just really fucking dumb contrivance, okay? It's just stretching it, man. Whatever. Romeo and Benvolio read the fucking guest list. Romeo sees Rosalind's name, and they decide to crash the party. Romeo to try and win her back, and Benvolio to keep an eye on Romeo, because this is a terrible idea. But it at least makes more sense when you know he's like 15 and not, you know, 20-something. Then we get a scene of Juliet and her nurse. Nurse. She doesn't get a name. Don't worry about it. Nurse, nurse. Hello, nurse. Oh, buddy. <laughs> you want to talk about Yakko, Wacko, and Dotsie? I remember that. That's planted right in there. That Wacko. Yeah. Rawr. Nope. Would have been better if I said Dot. No, there was no good answer. Nurse's job is to take care of Juliet and tell a lot of uncomfortably sexual jokes. But then Lady Capulet is like, go away. Paris is coming and the party is starting and Juliet needs to get that dick, girl. But little does she know that fate has other plans. Stupid, horny plans. Speaking of Romeo, Benvolio and their much cooler and more interesting friend Mercutio are getting ready for the party. Which, by the way, is a costume party, which is how they can crash it without getting murdered. Mercutio doesn't have to crash because he's on the list. He's not a Capulet or a Montague. Actually, he's related to the Prince of Verona, so he can just chill with whoever without it being a whole big drama thing. But he'll make it a whole big drama thing anyway, because that's kind of Mercutio's brand. That and being horny. Because again, this is literally a play about a bunch of teens who are just desperate to, if not fuck, at least dry hump each other. Romeo's still being moody and Mercutio's just like, we are going to a party and you specifically are bringing me down. And Romeo says he's burdened by love, that it's been rough with him, and pricks like a thorn. And Mercutio's just like, hey, you said prick. Benvolio just wants to go to the damn party already, but Romeo's still dragging his feet and feeling his feelings about Rosalind and starts to say that he had a dream the night before. But Mercutio cuts him off before he has the chance and is like, yeah, I'm sure your sad wet dream about your ex was super interesting, but we're just going to ignore that. And I'm going to give a super crazy monologue about a magic dream fairy who gives people wild fantasies and nightmares instead. And he does. It's the Queen Mab speech. It's really intense and loaded down with symbolism and is a wild thing for a kid to just bust out and further proof that Mercutio is the best. Because he could have just said, dreams are silly and don't mean shit. But no, that would have been way too easy. And, you know, Mercutio doesn't do things the easy way. No. Once he's gotten that out of his system, though, now they can go to the party. And everyone's having a great time, and then it happens. Romeo sees Juliet. And before you can say, Rosalind who? He has fallen completely in love with her. Which... So, like, we figured Romeo's probably around 16. Can you picture any world where a 16-year-old looks at a 13-year-old and goes, Damn, I want that. I mean, I'm sure it happens somewhere. Like, it, it makes sense to me when Juliet sees Romeo and reciprocates, because what awkward pubescent 13-year-old would not be super into that situation? Like, you're 13, you see a 16-year-old, and you're just like, hell yeah. But I just can't mentally put myself back into the shoes of being like a high school sophomore and be like, yeah, eighth grade boys. Yeah. <laughs> just can't. Before Romeo makes his move, though, Tybalt hears him monologuing about how hot Juliet is and recognizes, apparently by his voice, that he's a Montague, which is insane. What does that mean? 
Like, it'd be one thing if he hears him and was like, oh, I know that voice, like, it's Romeo. But it's not that. He says, quote, this by his voice should be a Montague. <laughs> what does that mean, RJ? They all spoke nasally like this. That's the thing. You know, they didn't carry it over to most of the modern adaptations. <laughs> yeah, some Romeo. I mean, or, you know, they're Italian. You go over here and you Yay. Romeo. It's Hey, little Juliet, I want to look at your little giblets. Hey. She does teach the torches to turn bright. Hey. Cabagool. <laughs> <laughs> So he reports this to his uncle, Lord Capulet. Hey, yo, Lord Capulet. <laughs> and uh, is like, you know, I'll fucking kill him. I'll do it right now. Here, in front of everyone, we can serve hors d'oeuvres on his corpse. And Lord Capulet's like, maybe we should be keeping a closer eye on you. And he says, also, no. Like, don't do not do that. Look, whatever. He's not hurting anyone. And it's, it's a party. Murder would kind of ruin the mood. Also, the Prince of Verona has been very anti-feud-based murder lately. So, like, whatever. Just let him be. And Tybalt sinks ominously into the shadows, muttering about vengeance. And Lord Capulus just like, eh, that's not my problem. Meanwhile, Romeo approaches Juliet and touches her hand. And his first words to her are essentially, Hey, girl. I'm sorry if my rough and terrible hand is... Unworthy of your perfect saintly hand. Let's kiss about it. She's like, don't be so down on yourself. Your hand's just fine. No need to kiss anything. In fact, if we touch palms, that's like making our hands kiss. And they do that. And Julia probably makes kissy noises when they touch palms. Because that's what I would do. Because it's hilarious. Like they do, like from Tarzan, where they just go, eh. And it'd be like this. Like, It's funny. Romeo, not to be deterred, is like, let's make like our hands do, but you know, with our faces. And then they kiss. And then they kiss again. That's some hot stuff. But then Nurse appears before things get too sexy and lets Juliet know that her mom's looking for her. And as she leaves, Romeo asks Nurse just who that hot young middle schooler was. And she tells him, Juliet Capulet. And that's a real boner killer. And he's like, ooh, fuck. After the party ends, Juliet asks Nurse who that dreamy boy with the dirt stash was. And she says, oh, you know, Romeo Montague, apparently. And Juliet's like, ha, whoops. And at this point, they've had one conversation and kissed twice. And could have easily been like, well, guess that's not happening. Time to pursue literally anyone else instead. But things don't work that way when you're young. Because you're definitely... Never going to love anyone else ever again forever, obviously. Obviously. Also, let's not pretend like the forbidden part didn't play into this. You always want what you can't have. Juliet's about to do this whole big soliloquy about like, what's in a name? Like, why does Romeo have to be Romeo? Like, blah, blah, blah. But let's be real. The fact that she's not allowed to be with him is part of what makes it kind of like exciting and compelling in the first place. I think you could definitely argue that it also does for Romeo, who was hot for Rosalind, who didn't want him, and is now super hot for this girl, who was literally a blood enemy. Yeah. And also, what teenager doesn't want to piss their parents off at least a little? So Romeo is crushing so hard that he doesn't even want to go home. So he ditches Benvolio and Mercutio after the party and hides out behind the Capulet house. They try to lure him back out by yelling dirty shit about Rosalind in the hopes of making him mad, not realizing that Rosalind is so three hours ago would eventually give up and go. Then we get what is referred to as the famous balcony scene, even if there never really was a balcony. This is true. (laughs) The famous window scene. Yeah, the famous window scene. (laughs) 
Romeo wanders around the backyard, speaking sad boy poetry to no one, sees Juliet, hides under her window, and eavesdrops like a fucking creep. She gives the aforementioned speech about, oh my god, I'm in love with a Montague, this is terrible, but also he's hot. And then Romeo reveals himself to her. Oh. Not like, literally. Look at me. Uh, the, the dick stays in the pants. Uh. And he's so cheesy about it. Like, he's so damn cheesy, I swear, that it actually kind of loops back around to being kind of cute. That he tells her, he, he just yells out, like, Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. And she actually has no idea who the fuck is saying that. She's like, no, actually, who's there? And Romeo's not registering this. He's still trying to be romantic. And he's like, by a name, I know not how to tell thee who I am. My name, dear saint, is hateful to myself, because it is an enemy to thee. Had I written it, I would tear the word. And I just picture him, like, writing down the word Montague and then ripping it up. Like, it's so extra. I love it. He's so dumb. And and now Juliet's like, oh, oh, it's, oh, it's actually Romeo. This is sweet and all, but you know, my family would probably fucking kill you if they, they saw you literally at my window, dude. And, and Romeo's like, yeah, but it, it's okay because I have the power of love. And Juliet's like, oh, well, that's okay then. And then they spout love poetry at each other for a while until it's like almost dawn and they've been awake all all night at this point and everyone knows this is when the best decisions are made and Juliet's just like oh wow it's so late my bedtime's usually like 10 30 hey you want to get married yeah yeah Romeo's like hell yeah that sounds awesome I'm friends with a friar and uh then they take approximately forever to say goodbye to each other because you know to be fair phones weren't a thing yet you know they couldn't exchange digits uh, the next scene is Friar Lawrence talking to no one in particular about neat herbs and plants and how they can be medicinal, but also poisonous and deadly. Unfortunately for Romeo, he doesn't come on stage until after the foreshadowing and misses that bit. Friar Lawrence says that it looks like Romeo, quote, hath not been in bed tonight. So he literally went straight from Juliet's house to the Friar's place. Kid is not wasting time. Gotta move fast. But Friar Lawrence is like, I take it you finally banged Rosalind, which there is so much to unpack there. A, was there anyone that Romeo was not whining about Rosalind to? <laughs> B, it's really weird that the first conclusion the Friar jumps to is like, looks like you didn't sleep. Bet you had sex. <laughs> C, is this a normal relationship for someone to have with their priest? No, really, I'm, I'm asking. I think you mean his religious daddy. <laughs> his faith daddy? Faith daddy. <laughs> like, is, is there a church where it's cool to walk in and be like, Sup, father, guess what? <laughs> what, my son? Got laid. Sick. And then, like, you high five. Yay! Because, <laughs> you know, that, that sounds kind of dope. Anyway, Romeo informs Friar Lawrence that Rosalind is out and Juliet is in. And they've known each other for one night, and they're gonna get married and love each other forever, and it's gonna be awesome. And Friar Lawrence is like, dude, you can't you can't be swapping out girls like this and claiming it's true love. Also, you're like 12. And Romeo's like, fuck you, I'm 16 probably, and you're gonna marry us, and it needs to be in secret also, because she's a Capulet. And Friar Lawrence considers that this marriage could be the thing that finally ends the war between the two families and agrees to marry them, because he's just as tired of the Montague v. Capulet bullshit as everyone else in Verona. Meanwhile, Benvolio and Mercutio are waiting around bitching about Romeo ditching them last night. They also found a note from Tybalt to Romeo that basically says, Grr, I'm gonna stab you at some point, and take the opportunity to take the piss out of him for being catty and tibbledy. 
Romeo arrives and they play dirty Shakespeare puns until Nurse shows up and Mercutio manages to both call her ugly and answer her question of what time is it with it's masturbate o'clock before Romeo takes her aside and tells her to tell Juliet to find a reason to go to Friar Lawrence this afternoon so they can get married. Nurse returns to Juliet after being a pain about it and drawing it out as much as possible for funsies and relays the message. And then also assures Juliet that she'll leave a ladder out for Romeo to climb up into Juliet's room so they could spend their wedding night together. Way to be a solid wingman, nurse. No one sees you nodding. Nurse does. <laughs> Juliet makes it to the church or abbey or whatever where Friar Lawrence and Romeo are waiting. And Friar Lawrence tells Romeo to maybe chill out a little and quote, love moderately because he probably popped a boner or something. He marries them. They probably make out. It's great. Meanwhile, Benvolio and Mercutio are right where we left them, probably wondering why Romeo's taking so long to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like, I'll be right back, guys. Don't even worry. Five minutes. Just a quick marriage or errand to take care of. But then who should appear? Jules Verne. He took his time machine. Because he wrote that. That's H.G. Wells. I hate you. <laughs> Try again. It's Jules Verne. He took his balloon around the world in 79, 80 hours. Got one more chance. Gonna get one more. Giuseppe! Who? Giuseppe, you got the pizza pie. What? You went Verona. You know, you got the good pizza pie. You got the best. Yep, it's Giuseppe. He's got a pizza pie. Everybody enjoys it. And then they go home at the end and plays over. Verona. Yeah. Like the mama used to make. Everybody enjoys the pizza pie and goes home. Yay, plays over. It's Tybalt! He accuses Mercutio of consorting with Romeo, implying it to be in the gay way. And Mercutio says a thing that's kind of like, I'll hit you with my sword, but also in the Shakespeare way, is, I'm going to cock-slap you. And Benvolio, literally the only mature boy in this play, is just like, guys, we are in public, can we not? And at that moment, in walks Romeo with that oh-so-fresh-just-married smell. And Tybalt's like, okay, Mercutio, shut up. I don't actually care about you. I want to fight Romeo. Let's do this, asshole. But Romeo doesn't want to fight. For you see, now that he and Juliet are man and wife, well, boy and wife, Tybalt is family. Kind of. We're family. <laughs> They're fast and the furious level family. We're family. <laughs> so it was Vin Diesel who showed up. Yes. He says, don't fight Tybalt, Romeo. Oh shit, there he went. There he, there go. he goes in his very fast car. It's Dom. It's Dominic Toretto and he's, he's No, trying... Dom Toretto. That's a different thing. It's Dominic Toretto and he's he drove to the fight to be like, Romeo, I used all my Nas to get here real fast to say, don't fight Tibble, your family. Nothing's more important than family. And so that's enough for Romeo to refuse to fight Tybalt, although obviously he can't say that this is the reason why. And so he just comes off looking like a coward and everybody's like, <gasps> and Mercutio sees an opportunity to make this about him and decides to fight for Romeo's honor, which many people over the years have interpreted as a gay thing. And I say that's perfectly valid. But I still read it as Mercutio wanting to always be the center of attention because he is in all fairness generally way more interesting than Romeo anyway. So Mercutio and Tybalt fight. And while Mercutio may be good at dirty jokes, he's kind of shit at sword fighting. And even as Romeo tries to stop them, Tybalt mortally wounds Mercutio pretty quickly. And then he just fucks off. Vivolio and Romeo tell him to have courage and surely he can't be hurt too badly. And Mercutio says, "'Tis enough, 'twill serve. Ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave man.'" 
And I gotta say, props to anyone who can manage to pun as they're dying. That's a skill. <laughs> then he gives his famous, a plague on both your houses line, meaning, you know, as neither a Montague nor a Capulet, it's bullshit that he's collateral damage in the feud. Which would be a more powerful line if my dude hadn't just willingly leaped into a sword fight no one was asking him to. But whatever. <sighs> then he dies. R.I.P. Mercutio, you were literally the only fun one of these kids. We'll miss you. Bye. Romeo cries that loving Juliet has made him a puss, which really isn't what you should be taking away from this, but, you know, teenage boys, etc. And chases after Tybalt, screaming out for vengeance. And they fight. And Romeo kills him. Like, immediately. Tybalt gets, like, two lines out and then, bleh, stab town. Population, Prince of Cats. R.I.P. Tybalt, he didn't have nine lives. Who could? <laughs> that was a bad one. Benvolio tells Romeo he should probably run for it, because, you know, he did a murder and all. And he does, right before the Prince of Verona and all the townspeople conveniently teleport to their location because plot. The prince, as you can imagine, is fairly upset, because he figured don't murder would be a pretty easy rule to follow, and yet there are now not one, but two teen corpses to deal with. Benvolio tries to explain the chain of events as Lord Capulet howls for blood and Lord Montague howls for not blood. And Prince is like, okay, well, Tybalt did murder first, so by the law of he started it, Romeo doesn't have to die. But he is banished because murder is still bad. And everyone decides that sounds pretty okay because Shakespeare decided this is how laws work in old-timey Italy. <laughs> Meanwhile, Juliet is waiting for Romeo to climb the ladder to her room for some wedding night groping. <laughs> But he never shows, and Nurse comes in to deliver the news that not only has Romeo been banished, but that it's for killing her cousin Tybalt. And Juliet's like, oh my god, he killed my cousin. How could he? Romeo, what the fuck? And, and Nurse is like, yeah, that's pretty awful. Romeo sucks. And Juliet turns around and is like, excuse me, that's my husband you're talking about. Excuse me. <laughs> And Nurse is like, okay, bring it down a notch. Anyway, he hasn't left town yet. He's at this weird friar buddy's place. Like, I'll go see him for you. Smash cut the friar Lawrence's, where he's trying to convince Romeo that banishment is better than being dead, and, like, this is something they can work with. And Romeo's being entirely unhelpful, and will stop screaming about how he'll never see Juliet again and should probably just stab himself. Everything would be better if I was dead. I wish I was dead. Nothing will ever be good again. Knowing what we know about the scope of Romeo's attention span, Friar Lawrence should have just, like, jingled some shiny keys over Romeo's head. <laughs> or actually, you know what? Like, I'm sitting here making baby jokes, but the kid probably really needed a nap. Like, think about the, the, the timeline here. He met Juliet last night. He went right to Friar Lawrence that morning without sleeping. They got married this past afternoon. He fought Tybalt and immediately went into hiding. I don't think he slept in, like, two days. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I think Romeo is hysterical and sleep-deprived and, and honestly probably needs a nap. And horny. Yes, and horny. I think a nap would genuinely help, though. But he doesn't take a nap. Instead, Nurse comes by, and they hatch a plan to smuggle Romeo into Juliet's room for one sexy night to validate their marriage before he has to flee Verona. Because, BT dubs, back in the day... If he didn't do the deed, the marriage wasn't considered legit and could be invalidated. Friar Lawrence is going to try and get the prince to pardon Romeo so he could eventually come back, at which point they'll go public with their marriage. So making sure these two crazy kids boink before Romeo runs off is actually really important for ensuring Juliet's dad can't be like, yeah, no, I don't think so, and eventually marry her off to Paris. So 
it's actually really important to the plot that these two children fuck. <laughs> they gotta do it. So under the guise of Juliet being just so sad about Sybil that she locks herself away in her room, no visitors under any circumstances, the two ensure that if nothing else, well, they won't die virgins, I guess. Which is funny because a lot of adaptations leave that out because they gotta be pure. They gotta die pure. But no, actually, they do fuck. Yeah. <laughs> they made way in stain. What? Yeah. I don't know what that is. I don't How is Babby formed? How girl get pregnant or net? How girl get pregante. So that happens, and Romeo leaves Verona to wait out Friar Lawrence's plans. Except. Except. Except that Lord Capulet is like, wow. Juliet is really sad about her cousin. Like, crazy sad. Way sadder than I would have figured. Because, like, Tibble was kind of a little shit. You know what I think would make her feel better? A good fucking. Marriage. 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 Marriage is the reason we are here for it. <laughs> we are gathered today. <laughs> Screw waiting a few years. Let's get her married now. You can't be sad when you're planning a wedding to some dude. So he decides to wed Juliet off to Paris in two days. That's enough time. Juliet is not super into this. And Lord Capulet is just shocked. Just cannot believe what he is hearing. What is her problem? He goes to all this trouble to find her a nice man that she doesn't know and is twice her age for her to marry in two days and she is not cool with it? And so he tells her if she doesn't like it, she can live out on the street and starve because he's a great dad like that. Remember, this marriage is supposed to make her happy. Since Nurse is the only one who knows the truth, she turns to her for support. But Nurse is like, I don't know, Paris is a rich count and also didn't murder your cousin and isn't a mortal enemy of your family, so, like, he's kind of a step up if you think about it. Juliet's like, you fucking traitor. And uh, goes to see Friar Lawrence about it. When she gets to the church, though, awkwardly enough, Paris is there, making plans with Friar Lawrence for the big day. And Friar Lawrence is just trying not to freak out, like, oh my god, they're gonna make me do a bigamy. How did I end up here? How could this happen to me? I've made my mistakes. I just wanted to help. Now it's big of me. <laughs> and uh, Paris is standing there wholly oblivious to the vibe. Like, this is nice. That child's gonna be my wife. We're gonna get married here. We're all friends. Then finally he leaves. And this time, Juliet is the one who just fucking whips out a dagger and starts screaming about stabbing herself so she doesn't have to marry Paris. And Friar Lawrence is like, no, give me that. Why do I get all the suicidal teens? Why can't I just get the ones that want to have premarital sex? So instead of that, he's just like, okay, I got a new plan. It's kind of bullshit, but we've got our backs against the wall here. And every time one of you kids walks in, you're threatening to stab yourself. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to Fake your death. I got this potion that will put you in a coma that basically makes you look dead for 42 hours. She never asks why this is a thing he has, but just to be safe, I'm gonna assume it's because he's a freak. I'm gonna kink shave Friar Lawrence. <laughs> like, this isn't a potion you just have lying around. Yeah, you never know. This is something you have for weird sex reasons. 
I will say, I do like that Shakespeare did have the forethought to let us know that the Capulets don't bury their dead, but instead stick them in a big old family tomb, because otherwise this plan would have immediately gone to shit. <laughs> they put him next to Uncle Giuseppe. <laughs> yeah. He made a pizza pie and now he's dead. We put him in the wall. I mean, it would have been really bad. It's like, oh, she's dead. We put her in the ground now. And Fryler's just like, wait, no, shit. <laughs> we cremate everybody, Fryler's. Fuck. <laughs> so there's just uh, a lot of ways that one could have gone wrong. So Fryler's says, okay, you take the potion. Everyone will think you're dead. They pop you in the family tomb. Fryler sends word to whatever whole Romeo is hiding out and outside Verona. Two of them sneak in. Once she wakes up, she and Romeo are free to run off to parts unknown. She goes home, agrees to marry Paris, and takes the potion before going to bed. The next morning, everyone is horrified to discover that Juliet has, to all appearances, died. And CSI Verona isn't a thing, so Friar Lawrence just shows up and is like, Oh no, this is so sad. Looks like she died of, uh, imbalance of humors? Sure, why not? Anyway, better get her ass in the tomb! They never actually give any kind of reasoning. The family just accepts it like, hey, she's dead. You don't dig too deep into this. <laughs> They're just like, yep, perfectly healthy 13-year-old girl. She's dead now. Meanwhile, in exile, Romeo is just chilling, feeling good. He had a nice dream, which unfortunately Mercutio is not around to tell him is stupid, that he was dead and Juliet kissed him back to life. It's fine. I'm sure it doesn't mean anything. Suddenly, one of his buddies, a kid named Balthazar, appears with the news that Juliet has died. There's a Balthazar in Much Ado About Nothing, also. The other, the other one by the, by the Duck Man. And there's a Bulbasaur in Pokemon. Balthazar! <laughs> I'm pretty sure we made that joke in Much Ado About Nothing, also. <laughs> uh, he appears with the news that Juliet has died. And Romeo, for his part, is like, is that, is that it? Any messages maybe from the Friar along with that? And Balthazar is like, nope. Just that your girl's dead. Bye. And Romeo's like, okay, there's only one thing to do. And like, I imagine like tiny little Friar Lawrence appearing on his shoulder like, go find the Friar and figure out what's actually going on. Except Romeo says, sneak into Verona and go directly to Juliet's grave to kill myself on it. And the shoulder Friar's just like, god damn it. (laughs) And he does, but not before buying some discount poison from a shady apothecary. Because apparently selling poison was illegal. This is weird to me, since all of his prior dramatics have been, like, stab-based. I don't know why he would go out of his way to buy poison when all of his things have been before, like, I'm gonna stab myself! But I guess Shakespeare had his reasons. So what happened to the message that Romeo was supposed to get from Friar Lawrence? It gets brought back to him. To Friar Lawrence, I mean. Because the guy he gave it to deliver, Friar John, never got the chance to, because... Due to a wacky mix-up, someone thought he had the plague and quarantined him. And so he brings it back. Like, Friar John goes back to Friar Lawrence and is like, Hey, here's that letter. I wasn't able to deliver it. And Friar Lawrence is like, What the fuck are you bringing it back to me? And so he tries to send the letter again, knowing full well this is going to bite him in the ass. But he heads off to Juliet's tomb alone to wake her. Wakey, wakey. Romeo, however, is already there, sneaking up on the tomb. Be beat Friar Lawrence there, only to find it occupado by Paris, laying out flowers and mourning his dead child fiancé. Paris sees him and declares that he's going to make a citizen's arrest, as Romeo is trespassing in Verona, after all. And also on top of that, it's extremely weird for him to be in a Capulet's tomb, so, I mean, it, it looks like he's there to, like, deface the tomb or something. 
They tussle, and Romeo kills him, and feels sort of bad. Mostly because Paris was related to Mercutio, and, you know, killing people is bad, and uh, he's over it. R.I.P. Paris, you were one of the least fleshed-out major characters in the play, so your most significant trait was being hell-bent on marrying a 13-year-old. As a quick aside, most modern performances, either on stage or in adaptation form, actually cut this bit out on the grounds that it complicates things. It's one thing if Romeo kills Tybalt. Tybalt is a dick and murders his friend, but the murder of Paris is a little more morally... As Paris has a perfectly good reason for going after him, and so this taints Romeo a little, and also just creates what I imagine a director sees as an unnecessary obstacle in the way of the big death scene. But it happens. And we deliver the truth here on Oh No Lick Class. We do not hide anything from you. Nope. After doing said murder, Romeo kneels at Juliet's side and makes some truly agonizing observations about how death doesn't seem to have made her lips blue, or her cheeks pale, or, I don't know, her skin rigid with rigor mortis. <laughs> but there's no time to sit and mull that one over. We got some dying to do. He gives her a kiss, takes his poison, and meets his end. Thirty seconds later, Friar Lawrence runs in, and one minute later, Juliet wakes up. R.I.P. Romeo, the hormones got the better of you. Puberty makes fools of us all. Friar Lawrence and Juliet look at the bodies of Romeo and Paris and are just like, well, this is not ideal. He tries to convince her to run away, as they can already hear people coming, drawn by the sounds of fighting, as everyone in Verona apparently tends to be. But Juliet refuses. Now, yes, Romeo being dead does suck a lot, but hey, Paris is also dead, so you know, she doesn't have to marry him anymore. There's that. She's 13, she's got her whole life ahead of her. There'll be other guys. But it never feels like that, of course not, you know. There'll never be another guy like Romeo. Never. Ever. And it's like, Juliet, sweetie, you could do so much better and too late. She already stabbed herself. Where the fuck did she even get another dagger? Never even met RJ. Yeah. Yeah. If only she'd known. I know. She would have only been like a thousand two. <laughs> she just held out. I know, right? R.I.P. Juliet. It's too bad you lived in a time before you could have listened to some really good Spotify breakup playlists and watched, I don't know, To All the Boys I've Loved Before or something. Shake it off. Shake it off. Maybe you could have helped you deal with this. Anyway, the prince and the lords and ladies Capulet and Montague enter the tomb and see the bodies Paris, Romeo, and Juliet. And Friar Lawrence is like, I can explain. And he does. He even admits to his own shitty ass plan. At least someone's taking responsibility around here, I guess. At the end of it, the prince turns to the Montagues and Capulets and says, See what a scourge is laid upon your hate, that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love, and I, for winking at your discords too, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished. Or, Your stupid bullshit is seriously just the gift that keeps on giving. It didn't just kill your kids by making them love each other, it killed two of my family members too. Those being Mercutio and Paris. And so the two family members agree to bury their feud. You know, now that everyone is either dead or miserable. Meanwhile, Friar Lawrence just quietly leaves and disappears to reappear some point later in Much Ado About Nothing and suggest basically the exact same plan again to a new group of people being like, nah, this time it's gonna work out. I got a good feeling. The end. And that's Romeo and Juliet, a cautionary tale of what can happen when teens get too horny. No, not, not actually, but that is a better logline than what it's currently got, right?
So a couple things here. Also, the sources that Big Willie borrowed from did end a bit differently. So in the Bandellos slash Brooks version, the nurse is banished, the apothecary is hanged for his involvement in the deception, and Friar Lawrence leaves Verona to end his days in a hermitage and does not appear in other future plays to inspire the same exact trick. <laughs> you choose your preferred ending. Aww. Nurse doesn't deserve that. Nurse was just trying to do what Nurse thought was best. <laughs> she should have listened to the man. So, in terms of adaptations, once more into the Shakespearean adaptational breach. So we've got some of our basic bitch stage productions. I guess we can start there. The most obvious and famous stage production is probably the musical adaptation, West Side Story which eventually got so popular that it got a film version in 1961. The only thing you and I can ever remember about it is the rival gangs, the Sharks and the Jets, walking down the street, snapping their fingers at each other. B-b-Benny and the Jets. That's not Jets. A, Jets. Jets. That's Elton John song that has nothing to do with anything. I don't know about that. The movie won 10 Academy Awards. We should probably watch it at some point. It's been done and dusted a million different times. Uh, recent performances like to set it in the modern world. Um, in 1986, the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company got very 80s with it, where uh, they all had switchblades and they did drugs and Romeo committed suicide with a hypodermic needle and it was like, oh, Royal Shakespeare Company, you edgy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times to try to give the family feud thing more weight they do specific historical contexts, some of which get a little yikes. Like they do the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or they do apartheid-era South Africa, or they do a mid-European uh, Cold War, and it's like... It seems hard to pull off well. It seems very easy to do a shit job. <laughs> In uh, 1997, the Folger Shakespeare Theater actually did a version where it seemed like they tried hard to make it more like them being actual kids. That they did a sort of uh, suburban Romeo and Juliet where the Capulet party is actually a barbecue that they sneak into, which I think is kind of funny. And that Juliet learns about Tybalt's death, uh, that she literally gets pulled out of class in school. So I think that, I think that's actually kind of a fun setting because that really hammers at home that like, these are kids. So those are just different ways that you can play it that I, I think are interesting. Uh, in 2004, Second City did a comedy musical adaptation called uh, The People vs. Friar Lawrence, The Man Who Killed Romeo and Juliet. I wasn't able to find out too much about it. They have a couple random tracks on YouTube. They seem kind of funny. I don't know. For movies, there's been 8,000. Yeah. The big, the, like, the, the big, big one is the one from 1968 that I mentioned previously, directed by Italian director Franco Zeffirelli. One of the reasons that it is one of the biggies is um, it won a ton of awards. 
obviously that's a big part, um, but also prior to it, earlier movies had straight up adults playing Romeo and Juliet because they wanted established actors and would often use actors who'd previously played the characters on stage and would be well into their 30s and 40s or even older. In the case of a famous uh, MGM 1936 production that had John Barrymore playing Mercutio that was in his 50s. So even though the actors in, in the uh, 1968 version were still technically speaking too old, they were actual teens, which was a hell of a lot fucking closer than anyone else was. And so that was a deliberate point on the part of a director. So that's why it was kind of like a big thing where it's like, hey, teens playing teens. And uh, although here's a weird fucking one before we get to like the other big movie adaptation when people think of Romeo and Juliet. In uh, 1990, someone decides, hey, here's a fresh concept. Let's film a feral cat colony and dub them over with British actors reciting Shakespeare uh, and call it Romeo.Juliet. Okay. Also, John Hurt will be there, playing a Venetian bag lady. No, you can't watch it. Only a trailer exists on Vimeo, because the universe is unkind. It was like a huge film festival hit, and then it was just lost to time. It makes me very sad, because I want to watch this so badly. They weren't like trained cats or anything. They just followed this colony of feral cats around and then had actors just dub it over. And not like random actors, like these were like famous British actors. <laughs> anyway, the other big one, which we rewatched for shits and giggles, is of course the 1996 film Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. No, it stars John Wigwazamo, but continue. <laughs> I hadn't seen it in at least 10 years, but still correctly remembered it as being wildly silly. And that's coming from someone who counts Moulin Rouge as, as one of their favorite movies. It's a modern take on, on the story that keeps the uh, dialogue intact. And uh, it's a movie. RJ, you're the one who wanted to watch it. You got, you got an opinion you want to blast off here? It's a good movie. Oh, I'm going to need more than that. I mean, you think of what Baz Luhrmann's done. He did Great Gatsby, did Romeo and Juliet. What's next? What literary character will Leo be next? This is really not anything about the movie, but what literary character is Leonardo DiCaprio going to do next? Humbert Humbert. Gross, but you know what? He does have a weird obsession with only dating... I mean, he's not children. He has an obsession with only dating 25-year-olds. Then you could do Old Man in the Sea. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you love a really stylized Old Man in the Sea? You know what? That's a challenge. If, if Baz Luhrmann really wants to take on a challenge, how can you stylize the fuck out of Old Man in the Sea? That is The ultimate minimalist story. That the fish, the marlin, it's like bedazzled. And it talks. <laughs> and they do show tunes together. Yes. Yes. Add us, Baz. But the movie, though. So. How about that Romeo plus Juliet? Yeah, it's fine. Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> And then it's got that Radiohead song you like. Radiohead. Good yeah. band. Yeah. Yeah. They wrote a song, a special for the movie, about how much they don't like Romeo. What a prick. And how they hope he chokes to death on his poison. He should have ran away. <laughs> but he didn't. They should have eloped. Uh, speaking of songs and movies, it's a bit of an aside, but we got really into figure skating the past couple of seasons, and we learned that many of today's top figure skaters go ham as all fuck for either like a medley of Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet or music from the 1968 soundtrack. They love that shit. It's classical. 
Figure skaters love doing uh, routines to Romeo and Juliet. Even the spoken parts. Yep. Two households alike in dignity. <laughs> There's also a really good uh, Dire Straits song from 1980 called Romeo and Juliet. It doesn't have much to do with the play, uh, though it does explore the nature of young love, sort of the ephemeral nature of it. The lyrics kind of show like a Romeo and Juliet that don't die, but grow up and grow apart. And Romeo is super bitter about it because it seems like Juliet's moved on to better things, which, yeah, that tracks. And he's <laughs> just a sour little shit about it. But uh, yeah, it's a good song. Dire Straits is dad rock personified, but whatever. I'm old. Leave me alone. So then... I guess we have to acknowledge that fucking Taylor Swift song, Love Story, from 2008. It was utterly inescapable. Gotta shake it off. No, shake it off. (laughs) It's it's literally, it's the plot of Romeo and Juliet, told from Juliet's perspective, except she tacks a happy ending on it. Like, not even a metaphorical one. Like, maybe they're, like, together in death or something. Like, no. The song ends with Romeo coming to her being like, Hey, we're good. I talked to your dad. Pick out a wedding dress. (laughs) She says that Romeo and Juliet is apparently one of her favorite narratives. Because, quote, the only people who wanted them to be together were them. As to why she decided to change the ending of a story she apparently liked so much, she said, quote, I feel like they had such promise, and they were so crazy for each other. And if that had gone just a little bit differently, it could have been the best love story ever told. And it is one of the best love stories ever told. But it's a tragedy. Fucking Taylor Swift. And I mean, the song was a massive hit, and she's rich and famous, and I'm an unemployed dipshit with a podcast, so I mean, what do I know? But I still think the song's fucking annoying, and that she doesn't know how to read the play. I'm just saying. Uh, Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. That's Romeo and Juliet adaptation. (laughs) First one was Hamlet, second was Romeo and Juliet. Simba's daughter falls in love with Bad Boy Lion, whose only crime really is that he looks like Scar, from what I remember. I have not seen that movie in a very long time. I've never seen it. But I, I do remember the song. When I say remember the song, I just remember the line that just goes, Deception! Disgrace! Evil is plain as the scar on his face. I probably have not seen that movie in over 15 years. <laughs> Nomeo and Juliet exists. Yes. Yep. In the sequel. Sure. Yeah? I just have this quote here from Wikipedia, because I'm not, we haven't seen it. Quote, it has a happy ending, though it seems at first the protagonists were smashed by the giant groundskeeping machine, the Terra Furminator. <laughs> I may have skipped over the Terra Furminator <laughs> in my uh, rundown. <laughs> Of Romeo and Juliet. Go on. It's a joke. There's no Terra Furminator in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh, go, go on about Nomeo and Juliet. I, that's all I have about no. Nomeo and Juliet. I don't give a fucking oh. shit. <laughs> Let me fill in the gaps here. Oh, God. So this takes place in Stratford-upon-Avon. Uh-huh. Supposedly where Shakespeare was born. Uh-huh. 
And see, these gardens are alike in dignity, but separated because one garden's owned by the Capulets, the other garden's owned by Montague, and one garden's like all red, the other one's all blues. Um, and there's this horrible rivalry. But here you go, Romeo and Juliet falling in love together, and they get married on a purple tractor of some sort because red plus blue equals purple. And yeah, you think they die, but oh, they survive, and then. Everybody lives in peace afterwards. The gardens are united. Now, here's the sequel. It's not Gnomeo and Julia 2. This is where Sherlock Gnomes comes in. See, Sherlock Gnomes picks up where Gnomeo and Juliet ends. And now, Gnomeo and Juliet, they're like in love and they want to go to London. So they leave Stratford upon Avon to go to London. And so Sherlock Gnomes goes with them. And that's where Moriarty shows up. And Moriarty wants to kill Nomeo and Juliet. But Shark Gnomes needs to save the day, and he does. And then Nomeo and Juliet, they kind of just move on. So it's kind of a sequel, and it's kind of a spinoff. It makes you wonder, who's the next literature gnome that's going to show up? And so they've it done... Makes, it makes me wonder. They, they did. You know, Nomeo and Juliet. They've now done Sherlock Gnomes. Well, who else rhymes? That's, that's a pretty easy way to figure it out, is go through your head and be like, well, who else rhymes with gnome? Um, I don't know. It's a, it, I imagine it's a pretty short list. I mean, let's see. Oh my god, are we really? Sherlock oh Gnomes. Sequel. Oh god. <laughs> a boring, pointless sequel. I'm shocked. Um, hmm. Things that rhyme with gnomes. This is a great use of our time. The whole point is literature things that rhyme with gnome. Mm. I'm done. Okay. Gave up. Except you're not because you're looking. Oh, Davy Jones. There you go. Davy gnomes. Davy gnomes. Davy gnomes locker. That's going to be deep. Maybe 10,000 a week is deep. 10,000 gnomes <laughs> under the sea. And I love Jim Varney's writings. Oh, no. Captain ne- Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. And that is Hey, RJ. God, let me get it out first. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Good or bad? Well, I mean, it is the play that inspired Romeo and Juliet and the Radiohead song, Exit for a Film. And so I can't be too negative on the play because I like both those other things. You still haven't? You've never seen Romeo and Juliet. I like those other things. Good song. Animated movie. Whoa. So I guess I got to be positive on it. As you said, there's been blood spilled over this thing already, so I don't need to spill more. Yeah, God forbid you have opinions. I have opinions. <laughs> Radiohead's good. Listen to more Radiohead, people. Now, I do recommend uh, turn of the 21st century Radiohead. Maybe not super early Radiohead and this later Radiohead. Hit or miss. Right in the middle there. Good stuff. Hey, RJ, what do you think about Romeo and Juliet? Listen to early 2000s Radiohead. Hey, Megan. <laughs> yeah, RJ. What's your favorite Radiohead album? Hey, Megan, how many leagues under the sea are you? Not enough, Romeo honestly. and Juliet. Yep. Your thinks on the matter. And that'll do it here <laughs> on Oh No, Wait, Fuck you. 
I, I think we've been conditioned as a whole to sort of dislike it based on how it's been framed in the popular consciousness over time as like this great and tragic love story for all time. Like, like how Taylor Swift thinks it is. <laughs> and that, that that's kind of ruined it. I mean, because it's, it's not meant to be read as this grand sweeping romance of the ages. Like, that's the criticism that we lob at it when we're like woke kids, right? Like, oh my god, they knew each other for three days. Like, what kind of shitty romance is that? Like, yeah, they're dumbass kids. We, we see these adaptations that fuck their ages up again and again and again. And when you see 20-somethings playing, you know, even 18, 19-year-olds, like, let's face it, uh, they're already kind of dumb in their own right. Sorry to any 18 or 19 year olds listening. We both were also 18 and 19 and kind of dumb. You know, we've been there. The point is, these adaptations have been crammed into our proverbial consciousness for the past said bazillion years, showed the admittedly deeply uncomfortable and honestly kind of icky truth that this is a 13 and probably like, you know, 16 year old, then I think it would quickly become more obvious that, yeah, this is not a deeply tragic romance full of, like, depth and meaning, but two puberty-addled kids who don't know no better doing what puberty-addled kids do best, making bad decisions because hormones and also to spite their parents. This is Shakespeare saying, isn't it sad when kids are, are pulled by the, the strings of fate? Fate, in this case, being a feud that's been going on since before they were born, you know. I mean, the play literally ends with the Prince of Verona shaming the Capulets and Montagues for their bullshit, and their dead kids are what it takes for them to, to put their BS aside, you know? So yeah. I, I think this is a play that, that has been hugely misinterpreted and misread for a lot of reasons. Largely, you know, adaptational reasons. It's fine. It's definitely not one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, but I can think of plenty that I outright dislike or even hate, and Romeo and Juliet for sure isn't on that list. In fact, honestly, rereading it and going back through it after not having engaged with it in well over a decade probably made me appreciate it more than I did before, so there's that. Pretty good. Better than I remembered. There you go. Yeah. It's not a love story. I'm sorry. It's a horny teen story. But it's a horny teen story in the most sympathetic way possible. If that makes sense. <laughs> and that'll about do on that note, that'll about do it for this episode of Onola Class. If you like the show, if you enjoy the things that you hear on it, then uh God, I don't know what you should do. Do something about it. <laughs> For the love of God, do something. Subscribe, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Tell everyone, tell your friends, tell your family. Tell your horrible blood enemy feud people. Tell your secret wife and or husband who you're gonna run away with. But don't poison yourself if they're fake dead. I'm very tired. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at own a lit class pod you can join our facebook group you can we're, we're on tumblr um you can patreon us at at, pay, at patreon you can do all of our things at ownalitclass.com all of that's at ownalitclass.com it's very it's good it's great it's super awesome our next episode will be on august 20th until then i'm megan i'm jules verne why not we love you bye I'm trying to do a 
joke. And I'm trying to be woke. <laughs> Mom tits are people too.